Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So yesterday when we were speaking about the contemplative life, we spoke about the essence of the contemplative life, its threefold components and the perfection of it. What's the essence of the contemplative life? Those who are intent principally on the contemplation of the truth or knowledge of the truth are living the contemplative life. The person's life is to, to know. It's given over to knowing the truth. God principally, as we'll get to today. There's three components to this. On the one hand, there's the activity of the intellect. We call it the intellectual life or intellectual activity. There's um, the intention of the will to be given predominantly to this pursuit, the contemplation of the truth. And then there's also association with friends in the process or in the life of doing so. The perfection of the spiritual, of the, I'm sorry, the contemplative life, we said, consists not only in knowing the truth, but also in loving the truth. So love is built into the contemplative life, both at its origin. We want to give ourselves to the contemplative uh, life and to the contemplation of the truth, but also in its end, its full flowering. Contemplation reaches its fullness when it abounds in love as well as in knowledge. Okay? There's many mysterious things. We could talk about the relation between knowledge and love there. Okay? But then we got a little bit more specific, and we began to speak specifically about contemplation itself, the act of the intellect. And we said that contemplation consists of gazing upon the truth with delight. So it's that marvelous activity which is very restful, very leisurely, where one simply beholds, simply gazes, simply looks, and and beholds with delight. It's particularly delightful when the object of one's contemplation is one's beloved, beloved truth. Okay? So that's sort of a recap of the contemplative life. And I was speaking with a number of people last night at the social, and I was just asking the question, have you ever heard a talk on the contemplative life before? And the universal answer was no. So this is a rather unknown topic it seems, in the church today, even though for all the fathers of the church and the great theologians of the Middle Ages and all the great spiritual masters and saints down through the ages, the contemplative life is like where it's at. That's where life is really lived to the full, right? 
not being Mary and, 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 and being anxious about many things, but I'm sorry, not being Martha and being anxious about many things, but being Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus and simply taking in the truth and enjoying it, enjoying him. So it's a shame that contemplative life is not a theme that's on our lips and in our minds and in the forefront of our minds. It should be. But we are, <clears throat> this conference is hopefully a remedy for that. And you will all walk away from here thinking contemplative life is where it's at. That's, what, that's the way I want to live, whether I'm in the contemplative state or not. So today we're going to get even more specific and get into some of the details about what kind of activities go on in the contemplative life. Okay. So we'll begin with a simple question. What are the objects of contemplation? In the contemplative life, what are we giving ourselves to the contemplation of? What is it that captures our attention? What is it that captivates us? What is it that, be, that draws us into this gaze, okay, this life of gazing, which is going to include inquiry and thinking things through and, and trying to understand and those sorts of things. Okay? St. Thomas Aquinas' answer to this is simple uh, but profound. He says, the principal object of contemplation is God. But secondarily, it's all other truth. It's God, principally, and secondarily, all other truth. Okay? So he speaks about the truth of God. That's not a way a lot of contemporary philosophers speak. A lot of contemporary philosophers speak as if only propositions can be called true or false, and every other use of the term truth is metaphorical. Aquinas does not hold that position. So he says God is truth. In fact, God is first truth. He's the fountain of truth. He's the fountain of light that I referred to yesterday. Okay? That's what we contemplate principally in the contemplative life, God. So God becomes our all-consuming quest. Okay? And it's he who draws us to gaze upon him okay? and to enjoy, to enjoy the, the perception of him, the contemplation of him. But secondarily, we do contemplate everything else besides God. And it's not just that we contemplate theories and things like that. We really are contemplating what St. Thomas calls the truth of things, the truth of things. So love, virtue, freedom, human nature, persons, justice, society, politics, ethics, good and evil, right and wrong, beauty. All those things uh, are objects for our consideration within the contemplative life. Okay? That's the way St. Thomas thinks about it. So the contemplative life embraces everything in its view. Contemplation takes all things in, like the cat on the top of the refrigerator that sort of takes in the whole view, it takes everything in, but it has a principal, I guess you could say, point of focus. And the principal point of focus is God, first truth, that fountain of light on high. Ah, but to drink from that fountain would be beatitude itself. Okay. And how do you drink from the fountain? Contemplation. You'll learn more about that if you read Joseph Pieper and his book, Happiness and Contemplation. So let's think about this a little bit. Let's talk about truth in general, then we'll talk about God as truth. So when it comes to truth in general, what it, here's how Aquinas thinks of the contemplative life. We're considering the truth of things rather than just the truth of statements, judgments, propositions, theories, packages of positions, and ideas. 
That's how we often think about the intellectual life or the contemplative life, and that's how we often experience rational inquiry, especially in university context. We're immersed in what they call a marketplace of ideas, and every day we have a whole bunch of different theories, points of view, positions, and ideas set before us. And the problem becomes one of adjudication on trying to find which one of them is true or false. Um, and if you can't do so, uh, the tendency is then towards despair and some kind of relativism or skepticism about understanding anything. For Aquinas, the object of, con when he talks about contemplating truth, he doesn't mean contemplating just theories, ideas, statements, propositions, or positions. Those are special kinds of entities. Those are called beings of reason, and they're not the primary focus of our contemplation. When we're contemplating the truth of things, it's things themselves we want to know. We want to know virtue, not theories of virtue. We want to know justice not theories of justice. We want to know what human beings are, not what 15 different theories of human beings are, okay? You've all had that sense of taking a class and having 20 theories put before you, and then at the end of the semester, you're like, yeah, but what's true? Don't know, we shrug our shoulders and the semester's over. <laughs> um, that's not really the contemplative life, okay? That's not really the contemplative life, okay? So we're not considering merely words or ideas, but reality. We're not considering merely words or ideas, but realities. This is very important because a great deal of discourse that passes itself off as intellectual discourse or academic discourse is really just about words or ideas. And as for the realities themselves, a standard sort of default position in a lot of places and a lot of quarters is, as for the realities themselves, shrug our shoulders, no one really knows. Okay? Um, so St. Thomas does not think in these terms at all. The contemplative life is not considering merely words or ideas, but realities. But he acknowledges something that you should all become aware of in your own personal life, for yourself, for your own personal life, but also for your pursuit of the contemplative life and of God in the contemplative life. Along with all of the fathers of the church, Aquinas acknowledges that our ability to consider things rather than just words or ideas, our ability to consider things stands in need of recovery from the effects of the fall and egocentrism that has set in from the fall. So Aquinas is thinking in a tradition that he has from Augustine, but also the Eastern Fathers have the same uh, sort of understanding. And Augustine thinks that because of the fall of Adam, Human beings have inherited a kind of pathology, a moral pathology. Uh, we could call it egocentrism. That'd be one kind of generalized term of it, and be a generalized term to cover the whole cluster of symptoms. But under this uh, egocentrism, human beings have a specific tendency, Augustine thinks. He talks about this in several places. And one of the, the tendencies of our egocent egocentrism is that we tend to love ideas more than things. And we tend to love words more than ideas. That might have been a little bit autobiographical on Augustine's part as a rhetorician. He really loved words. But uh, I don't think it's just an autobiographical sort of statement from Augustine. There are a lot of people who obsess about words okay? and what people are saying. Who's saying what? About what? That's 
in order to live the contemplative life, there needs to be a kind of healing and purification of the, of the soul and of the mind so that our ability to consider things just for what they are and to love things for what they are more than we love theories and ideas and words, that, that needs to be recovered. Okay, there needs to be a healing and so we need to be on the lookout, we need to be vigilant in our lives about how we're living the contemplative life, how we're pursuing the truth, how we're going after it, or going after him, or letting him come to us. How are we living it? Are we just obsessing about a variety of theories and ideas? Are we just interested in what people say and uh, what people have thought? Or are we really interested in knowing things themselves? And if it's things themselves that we really want to know and that we're after, are we willing and ready to make the sacrifices that need to be made in order to know things themselves? And there could be a long list of potential sacrifices a person needs to make. Everything from giving up other things to, to have time to study, but maybe more fundamentally, things like giving up your pet theories, giving up your pet opinions, giving up your premature judgments, giving up your... Uh, proud estimation of your own understanding of things uh, and becoming humble before the mystery and the greatness of the truth and being reverent before the vast complexity uh, of the world around us, uh, that is all going to be part of a process of recovering our the ability to know the truth of things rather than just obsess about theories, ideas, positions, and words. When it comes to the truth in general, that is, we could say every, let's say when it comes to every truth other than God himself, Aquinas has a very simple position. Every truth other than God himself, everything other than God himself, every being other than God himself is an effect of God. So whether you realize it or not at first, whenever you're considering anything other than God, you're looking at what he calls a divine effect. So when you're learning the periodic table of the elements, what you're learning, whether you realized it or not at first, you're learning divine effects. That's how make God made the world. When you're learning things in biology about the animals and the flora and fauna of the world, what are you studying? Divine effects. When you're studying human nature, human psychology, or anything other like that, Law, medicine, engineering, what are you looking at? You're looking at divine effects. You will probably never hear a professor tell you that. Okay? So it's very, very important. I mean, maybe, maybe some of you have, have been privileged to have some Christian and Catholic professors in certain places. But for the most part, in most schools, most professors today will never stand up in front of the classroom and say, uh, today we're going to study this specific set of divine effects. But these are divine effects we're studying. In fact, they'll tell you the opposite, many of them. So you must absolutely banish from your mind every thought that this is from God. Okay? Well, no, you shouldn't. You should do the opposite. You should become cognizant that what you're studying, whenever you're studying anything other than God, are divine effects. Okay? And when you become aware of that, then the whole world is a kind of manifestation of God, a theophany of God. And studying all of it teaches us something 
great or small, about God. And we really need to become people again. Christians and Catholics need to become people again who can study the world of nature and be thrilled about God because of their study of nature. A great deal of modern spirituality dissociates from nature altogether. It's all about interior life alone, and the world as a manifestation of God has like nothing to do with the spiritual life. Now, there's many complex reasons for that in the history of, of, of the development of our civilization. Science problematized nature, you know, in the late Middle Ages and early modernity. And so seeing it all things as a manifestation of God is no longer a kind of spontaneous default habit of mind for us. Okay, especially after we're immersed in a naturalistic scientific education. Okay, a scientific education that has naturalism as its default background philosophy. Okay, um, we, so we need to realize we need to wake up again to the, the habit of mind that can spontaneously read the world as a series of divine or a set of divine effects. And if you do that, then everything belongs to the contemplative life. Everything great in philosophy, in the sciences, in the arts, in literature, okay? It's all fair game in the contemplative life. But it's not the principal thing in the contemplative life. It remains secondary. It remains but a road to God. It remains but a road or a way to God. The principal thing we contemplate in the contemplative life is God himself. God is truth. He is the first truth. Like I said, he's the fountain of light on high. St. Thomas's expression is first truth. St. Catherine calls him beloved first truth. I think that qualification is important and, and very consistent with Aquinas's understanding of the contemplative life as contemplating he whom we love, the truth whom we love. And if we distinguish, we can now distinguish, we need to distinguish between two kinds of knowing, generally speaking, a knowing God. One kind of knowing God is knowing God from effects. We start out considering things in the world around us, and we rise up to the knowledge of God. That's knowing God from effects. And Aquinas realized <clears throat> that even pagans can do that. And he acknowledged that even pagans could live a kind of contemplative life. In fact, Aristotle talks about this in the Nicomachean Ethics and the last book of the Metaphysics, I'm sorry, the last book of the Ethics is devoted to uh, the proposal that the contemplative life is the happy life. And Aristotle literally did. He and a group of his friends withdrew uh, to a kind of philosophical commune, and they devoted themselves entirely to the research of things in nature, the research of things in politics and all kinds of things, and, and gathering their researches, debating things through, and delivering their findings to one another in discourses or speeches that they would give to one another. And as far as Aristotle was concerned, that is the happy life. That's the happiest human beings can be in this life. Those who live the active life may not realize that, but they're just wrong, okay? <laughs> that's, that's Aristotle's position in the, in the last book of the Nicomachean Ethics. So given that phenomenon, which Aquinas encountered when he studied Aristotle, he realized um, contemplative life is not necessarily or essentially a specifically Christian thing. It's a human thing. It's a human thing. Humans are inclined to know the truth naturally, and uh, in the human race, 
gifts are distributed differently, and some people are preponderantly inclined to study the truth and seek uh, to know the truth for its own sake. And Aristotle would be an example. Aristotle and his buddies would be examples of that. But as far as Aquinas is concerned, uh, that form of it, that form of contemplative life that was lived among pagans or pre-Christians, although it's a, it is a form of contemplative life, it's imperfect. It's imperfect. Why is it imperfect contemplative life? Because the principal object of the contemplative life, God, the truth of God, they can only know from His effects. They could only know God by looking at the world around them, reasoning upon mobile being or upon being, and rising up to the, to the existence of God, and the conclusion, God must be up there or out there, and here is what some of his attributes must be. He must be immutable, <coughs> e- you know, eternal, etc. Okay, the thought thinking itself. But that's c- catching a glimpse of God from afar, we could say. Catching a glimpse of God from his effects, from the divine effects. Something marvelous has happened in Jesus Christ, though, to say the least. Um, (laughs) Something amazing has happened, and that is that God himself has opened up his interior life to us. He has sent, the Eternal Father has sent his Son, his Eternal Son in person, Jesus Christ, to live and to dwell among us. And he's poured out his Holy Spirit upon us, thanks to the cross and resurrection of Jesus. He's poured out the Holy Spirit upon us, and we have received of his Spirit in our baptism, in our confirmation, and the church has been, uh, has been established on the earth. And now, as members of the church, and people as his temple, the temple of the Spirit, members of the mystical body of Christ, and people who have received this revelation by faith, it's now possible for us to know God, not simply from his effects in the world around us, but personally, immediately. Which is astonishing. Aristotle himself says in the Nicomachean Ethics, no one can be friends with God. A student asks him the question, could anyone ever be friends with God? He just says, no, man and God have nothing in common. Let's move on. But at the Last Supper, Christ, God himself says, I no longer call you servants, but friends. And at that moment, the gap between God and humanity is overcome, not at that moment, but in that announcement, we should say, Jesus is saying, I'm overcoming the gap between God and man, and now God and man are going to be friends. And so we have an immediate knowledge of God, meaning it's not through the inference from things, from divine, divine effects, but by revelation from God himself, we receive that revelation in faith, and we can respond to the God who has revealed himself to us with love. So God himself can be for us, we can know God in himself. We can know God in himself. That's how Aquinas puts it. So there's knowing God from his effects, you know, studying the world around us and inferring there must be a God, versus knowing God in himself, which is what we do when we believe in him by faith in his divine revelation to us. And we enter into that life of grace he has bestowed upon us. Okay? So for Aquinas, contemplative life, a perfect contemplative life, is going to be knowing God in himself and being devoted to that. Okay? But that's not going to exclude knowing God from his effects. 
what it's going to do is gather everything, knowing God from his effects, uh, is going to be gathered up around knowing God in himself. Okay? So just Godward gazing, looking upon God, uh, pondering God, contemplating God, and enjoying God. How do we know God in himself? Here's a simple answer in this life. Here's how we know God in himself. Faith. Faith is, the theological virtue of faith is knowing God in himself. It's not yet the beatific vision. It's a knowing God with an obscurity. We don't see his essence, but we know him in himself. So that means the contemplative life, in the perfect form of it, is going to be an exercise also of faith. Of faith, not just reason, but faith. Faith and reason working together. And this brings us to another topic that I at least want to get on the table for people to be able to discuss, and we can talk about it. It's the topic of contemplative prayer. Contemplative prayer. So there's contemplative life, contemplative state, the, con- the act of contemplation, then there's contemplative prayer. How shall we understand contemplative prayer? The Catechism of the Catholic Church gives the simplest, best definition of it you'll ever find. Contemplation is a gaze of faith fixed on Jesus. That's contemplative prayer. That's how it defines contemplation under the heading of contemplative prayer. Contemplative prayer is the gaze of faith fixed on Jesus. So it's knowing God in himself as he's revealed himself to us in and through the person of Jesus Christ and all that Christ and all that God has revealed to us and all of his and all the ways that are gathered up in scripture and tradition. So the contemplative life has as its principal object God himself and the we could say the highest, most perfect form of it would be contemplative prayer. Aquinas knows all about this, that the fathers of the church are quite well aware this is what we're after. There's a kind of knowing of God that's very personal, very familiar, very intimate, that can come to us in, in and through prayer, through faith and prayer. And that's the, that's the good stuff. You know, that's the kind of intimate, divine intimacy, they say. That's where it's to be found in this contemplative prayer. But again, uh, everything else that we know about God from his effects is not to be excluded, but rather brought into that in some way. Okay? And contemplative prayer can, can be something that's going on in the depths of our souls that's actually driving and guiding our inquiry of various kinds. Okay? So to sum it all up, how shall we understand the contemplative life? It would be a life of relating all truth to the first truth. A life of relating all truth to the first truth, God himself. That's how we could think of contemplative life, okay, in general, in its perfect form. All right, what, now let's go on to another question. What are the acts of the contemplative life? What are the acts of the contemplative life? What are the kinds of activities that go on in contemplative life as such? Aquinas gives three. On the one hand, there's a very broad term he, he just calls cogitatio, cogitation. And cogitatio is a very broad term for uh, any act of the intellect whatsoever. Any act of the intellect whatsoever. So any kind of thinking, gazing, looking, apprehending, judging, reasoning, uh, <laughs> paying attention, not paying attention, whatever. All, any kind of act of the intellect whatsoever is cogitation. So it's a very broad term. Okay, 
Now we'll come back to that broad notion. You can think of it as like a genus, and there's going to be two species that Aquinas talks about. One we've already mentioned. One species of cogitation is going to be contemplatio. Contemplatio. That's gazing upon the truth with delight. It's that looking, beholding, gazing. Okay, like standing before the sunset, standing before the icon, uh, standing before the crucifix, simply beholding Christ. That's contemplation. But then there's this other act of the intellect, generally speaking, or activity of the intellect, called meditatio, meditation. Okay? What is meditation? It's not contemplation. It's distinct from contemplation. It's actively figuring things out. It's figuring things out. It's working through questions, puzzles, positions. Okay? So thinking things through. That's meditation. That's meditation. Uh, Aquinas thinks contemplatio and meditatio are related. Contemplatio, you can think of as the, as the principal thing. But in order for our contemplation to grow, we need to go through a meditative process or uh, an activity of meditation on many things, many questions, many problems, many puzzles. And those lead us, those meditations lead us to many insights that are. Uh, going to be the fruit of contemplation, just looking and beholding. So remember that cycle I talked about yesterday? Simple apprehension leads to judgment. Judgment leads to reasoning. Reasoning leads back to uh, apprehension. It's the same idea here. First comes contemplatio. Then that gives birth to a process of meditatio. And then meditatio leads to deeper contemplatio. And you go round and round and round in the intellect that way. Okay. The first questions you ever raised in your life when you were a kid, the very first questions, the first acts of meditation were the fruit of some contemplation you had already gotten. You'd already somehow become aware of reality. Being falls first in the intellect. And then you just went to work. Well, what's reality? And you, and you tried to figure it out. And so you were asking people questions. And then when you give your answers, you go, oh, and you have a contemplative moment. And then you go back into meditation, see? So that's how he thinks. So those are the acts of the contemplative life, okay, as contemplative. Now, there's also going to be active moments within the contemplative life. We talked about that the other day. But when we're talking about the contemplative life and giving ourselves to the pursuit of contemplation, we're not going to be like angels where you can just sit, look at the world, take the truth in, and just get it. It'd be nice if, that was, if that's how it was, but that's not how it is with us. We take the world in, it's kind of confusing and problematic, so we have to figure it out. Then by figuring it out, we've taken it in a little bit more, then guess what? That just generates harder questions. And then you figure those out to the extent possible, and you have, guess what? Deeper contemplation, but now deeper questions. Then deep, more meditation. Then deeper, more, then deeper contemplation. Deeper meditations, et cetera, et cetera. And we keep going and going. All right. I take it that this rings true to your experience in some way of living the life of a student. Okay. So now what are the means to contemplation? What are the means to contemplation? That's the next question. And here I'm just going to read you a quote, a beautiful quote from Aquinas where he answers this rather succinctly. This is just a gem, this, this, this passage from Aquinas. He says, man reaches the knowledge of truth in two ways. That's a pretty broad statement, right? How do you know truth? How do you reach the truth? There's two ways. 
First, by means of things received from another. We've got to take things in. We've got to receive things. Uh, in this way, as regards the things, he receives from God. So we're, Aquinas thinks we're receiving things from God. What do we need to do? Prayer, he says. As regards the things he receives from God, he needs prayer. According to Wisdom 7.7, 7, I called upon God and the spirit of wisdom came upon me. While as regards the things he receives from man, he needs hearing insofar as he receives from the spoken word. In other words, you've got to listen to lectures. Okay? That's what he means. You've got to listen to lectures. And um, reading insofar as he receives from the tradition of Holy Writ. Okay, so we need to read. We need to take in books. Aquinas has in mind principally scripture in this passage, for sure. Okay? But there's a, another thing we need. He says, secondly, he needs to apply himself by his personal study. And thus, he requires meditation. Thus, he requires meditation. So if you want to know the truth, there's four means. We need to pray. I'll come back to that in a minute. We need uh, to hear. We need to listen to lectures. We need to read good books, especially scripture. And we need study, which Aquinas here just says is meditation. It's meditation. So that already gives you a hint of what study is for Aquinas. Study is prolonged meditation. It's prolonged and intensified meditation. Okay? And we'll come back to that in a moment. But I want to pause here and point out one thing. This is really interesting. Aquinas thinks that one of the means to knowing truth is prayer. That's another thing you'll probably never have a professor tell you. <laughs> you will not have a professor stand up in the universities today. I mean, unless you have some exceptional professor who's a Christian. And, uh, <laughs> but they'll never say, look, if you really want to know, to know the truth, an essential part of your method is going to be asking God for light. They'll never tell you that. Okay? Generally, let's just say generally speaking. I should take back the never. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can ask yourself, have you ever had a professor tell you that? Have you ever had a professor stand up and say, look, if you really want to know the truth, you need to ask God for light. Whereas for St. Thomas Aquinas, all mm. the theologians of the Middle Ages, and all the fathers of the church, that was a no-brainer. You think you're going to figure out truth without having recourse to God? The truth is this vastly problematic, um, wonderful maze. And you think you're going to work through it all just by like your own strength or power? That's absurd. That's completely proud. No, we need to realize that we are dependent upon God for truth. He's the teacher of the truth, and we need to have recourse to him. And many of St. Augustine's writings, I mean, you can read, he just kind of goes back and forth between prayer He's calling upon God to give him truth and then meditating through things. I mean, that's kind of what the Confessions is. But you can read the soliloquies. It begins with this long, extensive prayer to God asking for him to light, him, to light Augustine up. We need to do that too. So, so prayer is not just a pious exercise that we do at the beginning of lectures. It's actually a constitutive part of the method of contemplative life or the means of contemplative life. I don't like the term method, but we can say means. That's Aquinas' term. Okay? 
So this, is, this also helps us to overcome this false dichotomy I talked about yesterday. A lot of people think the life of prayer is over here, right? There's this relation, prayer is like this relational, affective, experiential thing, and over here is study, and over here is intellectual life, over here is the academic pursuit, the rational side of humanity, and that has nothing to do with it. No, actually, when it comes to searching for truth and living contemplative life, prayer is a crucial means. That's why when we have Thomistic Institute events, we have Mass together, we have sacraments, we have, we have the Sacrament of Penance available, we have Eucharistic Adoration, the Liturgy of the Hours is available, the Rosary is available. Um, why? That's part of how you pursue the truth. It's, an, it's, a, it's a means. Okay? I just wanted to focus on that, because focusing on that and noticing it can help us to overcome our false dichotomy and help us to work out the integration that needs to take place. All right, now I'm going to read you something that Aquinas quotes. It's from Richard of St. Victor, but Aquinas quotes it in full with approval, and it goes like this. It's a kind of summary. Quote, Contemplation is the soul's clear and free dwelling upon the object of its gaze. Meditation is the survey of the mind while occupied in searching for the truth. And cogitation is the mind's glance, which is prone to wander. I want to pause with that. If we think about cogitation in general, okay, just all the acts of the mind going on, or what Aquinas calls here, what Richard of St. Victor calls the mind's glance, we all have this experience. Doesn't your mind, doesn't your glance your attention, your questions, and your inquiries, doesn't it jump around? Go from here to there and here to there? And you may want to sit down and say, look, I've got to study this, this orgo chem and get ready for my exam tomorrow, but I just know that over here is like you know, something in Aquinas, okay? And I really want to read that. And, and you can sit down and try to like work out the orgo chem, but something's hankering at you saying, wouldn't it be better to just do metaphysics, you know? Um, and that's the, the proneness of the mind to wander. And not only can we wander, um, we can wander from good things to evil things. Okay, that's one problem. Uh, we can be caught up in temptations. Aquinas thinks that's a real problem for people that lack chastity and purity. The mind just tends to wander off into pleasures of the flesh and makes the contemplative life virtually impossible. Okay, so purity and chastity are really crucial for living a contemplative life so that the mind is not constantly being yanked away from its gaze upon God and upon the truth of things. Uh, but even apart from the mind being yanked away by sin or wandering off into sin, there's still a question of distractions, being distracted by irrelevant stuff. I mean, you can't tell me that you've never been distracted in your studies by, stu by, by interests and questions and topics that were just irrelevant to the matter at hand. And you can't tell me that every time you said to yourself, oh, you know what, I just got to go on the internet to check this one thing. Okay, I just got to look up this one root for this one Greek verb and just sort of get, the, get this right. Uh, and then you go on the internet and all of a sudden an hour later, Okay, you're like, oh, here I am. And you ask yourself, what did I do during this hour? Okay, and you, the answer is you did nothing. Okay, or you learned basically nothing. Okay, so the, the mind is prone to wander off in this, um, 
because it's, yeah, it's, it's prone to wander off, not to stay on task or on target or on topic, okay? So once you realize this, okay, that the, we have a problem with temptation and distraction coming into the, the contemplative life, you might even say this is one of the principal challenges contemplatives face. The problem of distraction and diversion of the mind. Okay? And once you learn this, you start to realize, wait a second, we need to somehow get a handle on the situation. We need to get a handle on the situation. So once upon a time when you were a kid, you, you first realized, I have hands. Okay? You may not remember this, but you did. You realized, I have hands. And I can use my hands differently. I can, like, cr- clasp and grasp, and I can also let things go. And kids go through a process of cognitive development where they take, they gradually learn to take possession or gain ownership or self-possession over their own physical limbs. And they're gradually learning, okay, this is how you use your hands, this is how you use your ears. Like, do you remember when you were a kid, I remember like cupping my ear, right? And I realized, well, sound comes in louder if I do this, you know, but if I don't, then it doesn't. It's like normal. It's interesting. The kids will press their eyes and see two objects and they're exploring their own members in order to take possession of them, okay? But here's the thing. What you do when you're a kid with your body, outwardly, when you grow up, you become conscious of your own interior activities, and you need to go through a similar process of taking possession of your own interior activities. And you, then you realize, well, wait a second. I have an intellect, and I have something called attention. And I can take possession of my intellect and my attention, and I can use it this way, or I can use it that way. And we gain possession of our own intellectual activity more and more as we grow, just as we, when we were kids, we gradually gained possession of our physical activity. Okay? Just when you were a kid, when you were, just as when you were a kid, you, you know, you had to learn, okay, I got these two eyes in my head, but how do I use them? And your mother had to say, look both ways before you cross the street. And you're like, oh, I get it. That's how I can use my eyes in order to, like, avoid being hit by oncoming traffic. Okay. <laughs> so something has to happen similarly with our intellect in the, we say, the spiritual core of the soul and the spiritual part of the soul. You have to learn. You know, you can use your intellect to look to the left or to the right. And there's a free and spontaneous activity of the intellect. But the intellect really tends to wander off when you just leave it to free and spontaneous activity. And there can be a deliberate use of intellect to think about this rather than that. And once you realize, wait a second, I've got this intellect that has this ability to look and inquire and think and ask questions and make judgments and learn things and gain understanding. But it's not just going to happen sort of willy-nilly. It's going to happen. I mean, there is a natural process in which it happens. But um, I can take ownership of that process and through a kind of adult, free, mature, responsible, self-possessed activity, I can apply my mind, my intellect, to different things, different times and different ways. Okay? Now, once you realize that, you have what we call the matter 
for the virtue of study or studiositas. Okay? What it, for St. Thomas, study is a virtue. Study is a virtue. It's a stable disposition to do what? It's a stable disposition to, to apply the mind. It's a stable disposition to apply one's mind to the right object at the right time and place for the right reasons and in the right way. That's the virtue of studiositas. It's the stable disposition to apply one's mind to the right object at the right time and place for the right reason in the right way. If you're a pure student and you've got an orgo-chem exam tomorrow and you decide, I'm not going to apply my mind to orgo-chem, I'm going to play games on the internet, um, that would be contrary to the virtue of studiositas. And you'd be giving into a contrary vice, which is the vice of curiositas. And the vice of curiositas means you apply your mind to the wrong thing or the, at the wrong time and place, for the wrong reasons, or in the wrong way. And once you realize that's what curiositas is, you're like, ah, oh, curiositas is a problem. It sure is. It's a big problem. And the internet really helps to make it a bigger problem. Okay? Um, so that's what study is. Okay, so we need to work on, with the help of God's grace, of course, we need to work on Developing a virtue of study, developing the virtue of study. So we study the right thing, right time, right place, right way, right reasons. Okay? And the answer to that, and if you ask the question, well, what's the, what's the right thing at the right time and the right way and the right reason? It's going to be the same answer for every, as for every other virtue. Well, prudence has to make a judgment about that. That's a matter of discretion. If you're a student, there's going to be that's going to be one set of circumstances where you have to study what you have in your classes. If you're not a student but a professor, it's another set of circumstances. If you're neither a student nor a professor, you're not in academia, you've got another set of circumstances. Okay? So circumstances are going to make a difference. Your vocation is going to make a difference. Your profession is going to make a difference to the answer. So each one of us has to um, make a prudential judgment about what are the right things I should be studying at the right time, right way, and the right reason. And that's a big question in living the contemplative life. How am I going to live the contemplative life? What am I going to study? And how am I going to study? Um, yeah, so that's, but that's study. But now I want to introduce you at last to one thing called sacred study. This is the notion I want you to have at the end here and take with you. So even pagans can study. And uh, Aristotle studied, and atheist professors can study, and they can learn a lot of things through study. But there's a study that we can do that sanctifies the soul. This is what a lot of people don't realize. It, given the false dichotomy that has spread throughout the church in the United States, the false dichotomy between relationality and rationality, for many people, especially those perhaps on the side of relationality, affectivity and the experiential and the absolutization of those kinds of movements of the, in the human soul or human person in response to God, those who champion the relationality sort of side of the spiritual life um, to the exclusion of the rational often don't realize that study can be a means of sanctification. They, when they think of means of sanctification, they think of going to Mass, going to confession, doing Stations of the Cross, reading the Bible, going to Eucharistic Adoration, praying the Rosary. Those kinds of things will sanctify you. But study, 
that what is that won't really sanctify you. Well, that's just not true. Okay. Study can be an exercise that's profoundly sanctifying for those who carry it out. Okay. It can actually lead you to God. It can protect and promote union with God in the depths of your heart. And guess what? It can protect and promote an experiential love union with God in the depths of your heart. I can't tell you how many times reading the Summa Theologiae, I've been just struck and just had to put it down and just behold and enjoy and respond to God with acts of yeah, love and devotion and thanksgiving and gratitude for letting me see this or, or, for, or for, for Christ doing what he did or for the Eucharist being what it is or something like that. So study can open the soul to the truth of God. Study can be the context in which we drink in the truth of God, but then study can also be the place where um, a profound love for God is enkindled and a profound affective and even experiential response to God can be uh, built up. That, that's just the truth. A lot of people don't think of it that way. But there is such a thing as sacred study. Okay? Uh, and I want you to have that notion. But in order for study to be sacred, in order for it to be sanctifying, it's got to be according to the virtue of study. You've got to be studying the right things, right time, right way, right reasons. Okay? Uh, and we have to come up with some, some sound answers about what, the, what that is for us, given our place and station in life. And when we are devoting ourselves to study, precisely with the goal of drawing into a closer union with God, study can really facilitate that. Sacred study will do so. But a lot of times we, are, we succumb to curiositas, we wander off in the consideration of other things, and that's it. We, we often don't really engage in virtuous study or sacred study. One last thing, this will be my final point. This is something that we learn in the Dominican novitiate. I'll share it with all of you. I share it with the students here at the House of Studies, especially the lay students who come who don't go through the novitiate and hear it, but they really like it once, the, once they hear it. Dominicans are taught in our novitiate that our life is a life of prayer and study in common okay, for the sake of preaching. Okay, but the thing we really focus on is the prayer and study. Okay, there's a certain order among these things. Prayer somehow comes first in a certain respect. Study predominates, especially in the early years. Okay, but all that takes place in the fraternal life. Um, but our study and our prayer, you see, when we, all be, when we all start out, there's like these two different activities. There's like prayer over here where we're asking for light, showing our devotion to God, etc. And over here... There's like rational analysis and trying to figure things out and, and work through arguments and positions and things like that. And we all tend to like say there's either prayer or there's study. There's either prayer or study. And we all kind of face an integration problem in the beginning. And the Dominican tradition is well aware of this and has a certain remedy and prescription for beginners. And the prescription is you just go back and forth. You do one and the other, one and the other. So you sit in your cell with a book, and you read. You enter into study, that prolonged, intense meditation. And if something strikes you, 
you stop. You turn, you look at the crucifix or whatever the case may be, and say a prayer. Thank the Lord, an act of adoration, praise, thanksgiving. Or you could even get up and go down to the chapel, you know, spend a moment with the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, but then come back, okay, and pick up your book and start studying. Then you study, and then you're struck again, you say a prayer, turn to the Lord. Then when that moment passes, you go back to your books. You read, you study, and you'll be struck again. Or it can be, you know what, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm studying here, I've been reading for so long, I'm getting kind of tired and weary, let me just put the book down for a minute and turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord, say some prayers, uh, and then you sort of get refreshed a little bit, get your mind cleared and say, okay, now let's go back to, to reading. And you just go back and forth. You just go back and forth. And that's how we all start in the beginning. But slowly, gradually, as we live the Dominican life down through the years, these two things start to become like one unified, overlapping life that just is your interior life. It's just a life of like studious prayer or prayerful study. It's, it's, it can be described both ways. And I'm very blessed and very fortunate to live with men whose, whose life has largely become this, this blend of prayerful study or studious prayer. It's hard to distinguish the two. And it's the contemplative life lived uh, fully. And it, it's just a marvelous form of life and a marvel, marvelous way to live. And I commend this to you. How do you want to live the contemplative life? You got your studies. You got your prayer. Just do both side by side, intentionally going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Ask God for the grace to integrate so that love abounds, affectionate response to God abounds, and all that, more and more. And God will work it out. He will work out the, the unification of these things in the depths of your heart. And when he does, then you'll really know God and, and, the, and, and have the joy of knowing him. And that's what the contemplative life is all about. Okay? Thanks. We'll take questions, but if you can repeat them, please speak up. Yeah. Oh, you want me to repeat? Good idea. Got it. So you mentioned uh, one of the elements of studio satas is doing is studying things for the right reasons. Yeah. I was wondering if you could give some examples of what the wrong reasons might be. Yes, studying things in order to prove your own superiority to other people. So vanity. The fathers of the church talk about this a lot. They say study for the sake of sort of showing off. It's just sinful. It just is. If that's your primary motive, if your primary motive is just to show off. To beat, other, to beat up on other people in debates, to demonstrate your rational superiority to this other person and just sort of like win like an intellectual wrestling match just to be the champion, that would be a kind of vain study. So studying for the sake of, yeah, domination, control, that kind of thing, uh, of other people in ways that are disrespectful. Um, that would be an example. Studying just for the, another example would be St. Thomas talks about this very explicitly. Studying just for the sake of getting the pleasure of knowing. So there's a lot of joy and pleasure, delight, that comes with seeing something. Seeing something deep. And if you're not careful, and in fact fallen human beings as their default position, have the tendency to want to study just because 
it feels good. Okay. Uh, and Aquinas says, this is how the pagans, the pagan philosophers were. They studied for the sake of this pleasure of, of knowing. They philosophized just for the, the stimulation of knowing and getting things. So it was like a self-stimulating intellectual activity. They're not stimulating the body, but stimulating like the mind and its, its capacity to know. So that would be kind of a totally egocentric or be a form of concupiscence, really. Okay? But the Christian does not study just for the, for, the, for the pleasure of it. The Christian studies and wants to know for the sake of the truth itself. So for God's sake, that's, um, that would be the virtue of study. Yeah. Yes, over here. Um, so you talked about the truth things, and I know Aquinas has that article showing that uh, truth and being are convertible, so maybe that's the yes. my question, but could you clarify in what sense things can be true? Okay, that's a good question. So what, in what sense are things true? So Aquinas says that the way to conceive of things, all things exist between two intellects. They exist between the divine intellect and between the created intellect either human or angelic, okay? So things, the, the intellect is true, the created intellect is true when it matches or is adequate to the reality of the thing. But the things are true when they're adequate or match the divine understanding of them. So what would be a true thoroughbred horse? A true thoroughbred horse would be a thoroughbred horse that lives up to the form of the thoroughbred horse as it is in the divine mind. And all things are true, at least to some extent, because all things live up to the divine exemplar to some extent. If a, if a thing did not live up to the divine exemplar in any respect whatsoever, it wouldn't even be. So that's how that's the short answer to your question. Yes. So when you talk about how the Christian doesn't study for pleasure but out of love for the truth. Yes. So when you when you think about that, I've heard a lot of things about like the Dominicans not usually having like leisure time or using like a lot of their leisure time for study because it is such a deep form of prayer. Does that become using study as leisure? Does that overlap between like the whole idea of like leisure as something we think about as pleasurable um, and make it difficult to make that distinction between whether or not you're doing it for leisure because like that's just what you do or because it's like a or because it's pleasurable there's yeah we got to be careful here there's nothing wrong with uh taking joy in studying okay and um that joy is often going to accompany it okay um so a, a concomitant joy, which is a side effect, which is a side effect of every possession of the good, is always going to be there. It's a question of whether it's in the line of motivation. Um, so uh, that there, that that is, yeah, that's that's need, what needs to be sort of, I think, purified to some extent. So also, we would need to distinguish between joy and a kind of pleasure of a baser variety, and. Um, this would be tricky to try to spell out in some, with some exactitude, but if the joy that you're taking in the study is because of the object, that's a different kind of 
but a kind of joy or fruition than a joy that you take if the if the goal itself is the the um the the activity and the pleasure of the activity we'd have to work this through to a, a kind of set of analyses but it's basically the difference between enjoying the object versus enjoying the response to the object and those are different kinds of pleasure and taking joy in, in the truth and having that joy in the midst of study there's nothing wrong with that god forbid yeah <laughs> Uh, the, the quote again from Richard of St. Victor is um, contemplation is the soul's clear and free dwelling upon the object of its gaze. Contemplation is the soul's clear and free dwelling upon the object of its gaze. Meditation is the survey of the mind while occupied in searching for the truth. Meditation is the survey of the mind while occupied and searching for the truth. And cogitation is the mind's glance, which is prone to wander. Is cogitation something that should try to be avoided? Is that always... No, I don't think it... It's not a, it's not a bad thing. Remember, it's the genus. Oh, it, is cogitation something to be avoided? No. Cogitation is a genus. It's any intellectual activity of the mind. Contemplation and meditation are species of that. Okay, but if you're not quite clear on, am I, you know, what am I doing right now? How am I using my intellect? Then your the mind tends to just kind of, the cogitation just tends to go everywhere. Yeah, that's the that's the basic idea. That if if you don't somehow take possession, realize that cogitation is this thing going on in you. Take a kind of free self possession of it and direct it this way or direct it that way. Your mind is just going to be all over the place. So, um, just sort of two-part question, but it's, it's all in the same thing. Okay. With that prayer you described, where you're, you're studying and then you're praying, is that what you would describe as contemplative prayer? Uh, now, that's a great question. It can be any kind of prayer. And there's, so, for St. Thomas, the, the term prayer is kind of tricky. Because um, there's St. Thomas's use of it, where prayer basically means petitionary prayer. He definitely used the term prayer in that sense when he said it's one of the means to contemplation. We need to petition God for light, for understanding, for the spirit of truth to descend upon us, okay? So it's going to be part of the, prayer is going to be part of contemplative life in a petitionary way. But when we are going back and forth between prayer and study, when you sort of put down the book and start praying, you have a lot of freedom, okay? So you can pray in any kind of way. You could pray in a petitionary way. You can make acts of thanksgiving to God. You, so it could be very vocal. Uh, or it could just be that you're reduced to silence and you just know God in a very personal, interior way. And that would be a kind of contemplative prayer. So Dominican life does not regulate interior life a great deal, if, if at all, really. Uh, so you're, you always retain, in, in St. Thomas's vision and the, in the Dominican vision, you always retain a kind of freedom to just have your inner life. And you can pray in whatever way comes to you, given where you are today, under God's grace. That's quite a different vision from how other, let's say, I don't know, forms of the spiritual life, we'll call it, out there in the church today, sort of think about the spiritual life. They tend to regulate the interior movements of the mind 
So you should first think this, then think this, then think this, first do this, then and then you have to discern the spirits, and then you have to do an examination of conscience, and then you have to do this, and then you have to... We don't have any kind of regimen like that. So it's freedom. That's the regimen. So the second part to that question um, yeah. is Teresa of Avila describes contemplative prayer as solely a gift from God, is that it is a supernatural aspect. Yes, now that's where you get into infuse, the question of infused contemplation, and St. Thomas does... Okay, the, the relation between St. Thomas's understanding of contemplation and the Carmelites is a big, big question, <laughs> to say the least. Um, but to, to give you a quick answer, the Thomists who have thought about that question have come to the view that what she calls infused contemplation, St. Thomas calls the Spirit's gift of wisdom. And so basically, um, they're pointing to the same thing. And so when I talked about sort of being silenced and just enjoying God in the depths of your heart, that would be a kind of movement of the Spirit's gift of wisdom. Okay, It's just that it turns out, based on the experience of the Carmelites, there's a lot more in the Spirit's gift of wisdom than just maybe enjoying a sense of God in the depths of your heart. It can become a pretty vast, rich interior domain, and the Carmelites are the people who sort of survey that interior terrain. Yeah. yeah my question stems from a very short comment happened during the lecture that you, you said that you don't like to use the word method. I yeah. think that's very profound, at least to me, because that's a challenge that yeah. I faced before, and I know many of my fellow um, scholars in my camp on yes. my campus is facing right now is that um, I would dare to use a more prevalent word today, technique. I think they both, there's, uh, yeah, they're, I, they're, they come, I think, to the same thing. So the reason I don't like to use the word method is because in the ancient times, method is something that a manufacturer uses to make something. So if you're involved in techne, art, where you use technique, technique is just, I think, the French term, French take on techne, the Greek term techne. So when you're making things, uh, there's going to be a step-by-step process that you go through in order to build it and make it. Okay? That's a method. That's methodos, okay, in the ancient world. So... So, a lot of people just sort of water down contemplation as practice of a certain technique, or they focus I know, on I know. That's exactly right. Too much. That's right. I, I need a technique. That's right. To conquer it. That's right. And that's Thomas doesn't have a technique. He just gives you these general sorts of things. There's cogitation, meditation, contemplation. Then there's you got to read, you got to hear, read, pray, and study. And within those general kind of guidelines, practical guidelines, there's a lot of inner freedom. And prudence has to make a judgment about what's the better, more specific means for you, given your circumstances, your field, your situation. Okay? Your discipline, the object you're after, the specific things you're working with. But what happens in early modernity is that the ancient method of uh, the ancient notion of method, Descartes takes that from out of its context in techne and applies it to the interior life. So now I'm going to use my intellect to build knowledge. As soon as you take tech, a method out of the domain of techne and transfer it to the interior life, the, you're, you, you're set up for a constructivist account of knowledge just from the beginning. And all that I think that what Kant and Hegel and others do is draw out the implications of that. So one of the principal ways that we push back against constructivist accounts of knowledge is to say, 
there's no method. Method is a problematical notion up front. We need to think it through very carefully. Oh, Father. So I know at the beginning of your talk you mentioned like the notion that all things are divine effects. So any field of study, right, sort of I guess points towards contemplation, right? Yes. Yeah. All forms of truth are subject to contemplation. Yep. Um, and I, I've always found I think many of us have probably found you know beautiful that all things so far they have being they reflect God Himself. That's right. But sort of to get beyond that, right, and to further sanctify like studies which are a little more down earth, I guess than metaphysics or like Aquinas' treatise on the angels or something, like how do we sort of keep that spirit of prayerful meditation with things which are just more down to earth? Like, is there no way we can kind of get beyond a mere understanding of things' effects and appreciate it like at a deeper level? Sure. So that's a good question. The question is, how do we keep a prayerful spirit in the midst of what we can call uh, profane disciplines, right? Uh, that don't immediately connect with God. So let's say if you're doing mathematics or engineering or something like that, how do you keep a prayerful spirit if you're doing something like that? Good question. The answer is, I think we all need to have a, a, a rich prayer life to begin with. If you don't have a rich prayer life and some, some time to pray, to devote yourself to acts of prayer, it's going to be very hard to have a prayerful spirit, no matter what you're studying, even if you're studying theology. So you could be studying theology you could be studying the Bible, you could be a biblical exegete and do it in a very kind of unprayerful way if you don't have a, a life of prayer going. Okay, so we all need to have a, a sort of prayer life. You have some form or another, and it's going to differ, it's going to vary according to circumstance, but we need that. And then <clears throat> once you have the, uh, a sort of prayerful spirit that has been formed and developed by having a, a regular prayer uh, routine, we could call it, um, then you'll have a spirit of prayer going in the depths of your heart. So even when your attention goes to other objects, okay, where you're not necessarily thinking about God immediately, uh, but you're thinking about you know, certain theorems and math or you know, certain ways of building this bridge or something like that, uh, nonetheless, you can have going in the depths of your heart this prayerful spirit. And what happens is that that prayerful spirit will break through into your conscious life from time to time throughout the day uh, and help you relate things to God. Another thing we need to cultivate, though, I think, is a habit of relating things to God. That's why I talked about contemplative life is really a life of relating all truth to first truth. We need to make that act of relating to all truth to first truth a deliberate sort of activity that we do throughout the day. So just, I can't tell you anything, other to, anything else than just try to do it. Pause. If only on your lunch break, think you know. How does this? How does this? What does this mean in light of God? You know. We have time for one more question. Okay. Um, so, I have ADHD, um, which means that my attention, um, given a certain t subject, um, can vary from a almost obsession to yes. almost a kind of struggle in order to stay on topic. Yeah. And that can. Um, Sometimes with, uh, with subjects that are correct in yep. my time of study and sometimes that are incorrect in my time of study, either one can go. Yep. Uh, so it's really a toss-up. So how exactly can I order that into, like, I mean, I, I know you're not I a know. psychologist, but um, I well, guess how can I work towards ordering 
Okay, so you're asking a great question. The question is, I if I have a mind where my attention jumps around and varies between, you know, obsessing about one thing, obsessing about another, and having a hard time staying on any one thing. So your my attention has been co-opted by some psychological forces within me. Okay, the answer to that is, in a sense, welcome to the fallen human race. Okay, um, we've all got that, and in fact, the Desert Fathers know a lot about this. And a great deal of their writings, especially in Cashin's conferences, are about dealing with this very thing. And a great way to understand the active life that leads up to the contemplative life. Remember I talked about yesterday how the active life creates inner freedom that allows the contemplative gaze to become stable, peaceful, and fixed on a certain thing. That's what Aquinas is getting at. That's what Cashin and the others are getting at. And the basic issue, not just for you, but for all of us, is that we have, as an effect of the fall, disordered passions working within us. Consciously or unconsciously, you could call them disordered passions, disordered drives, proclivities, disordered tendencies. The Eastern Fathers just call them passions. It's kind of confusing to use that language to to us, but that's their term for it. Today, we might call it like disorderly drives. Conscious or unconscious. We've all got this cluster of drives that's pulling us this way, that way, that way. And our inner life, our conscious life, we're in a way victims of our, the drives of, of our fallen nature. Until we go through a process that was traditionally called purification. And as we go through the process of purification, the great thing about going through the process of purification is precisely this. Your inner life, your attention your mind, your heart, your loves, your, your, are all set free to be devoted to the one thing necessary and to live like Mary at the feet of Jesus. But man, we got to go through a lot of purification. And that's why um, we need to think of the contemplative life as like we, we walk through the active life towards the contemplative life um, but with both going on at the same time. But a huge part of living the contemplative life in practice is that purification. And if you ask me, well, how do I get the purification? I would say all of the teachings and all of the practices of the Holy Catholic Church of God are given to the world for the purification of the heart of man. Okay, so that's it. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.